Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're on holiday. Yeah. It's a it's a beautiful sunny day. Okay. You've got a lovely family. True. Any number of things you could still do in social distance. What the hell are you doing? Why are you here? That's such a good question. Hi, I'm Raphael Bear, and this is Politics on the Couch. We're experimenting this week with something different, a bonus episode. Because, well, sometimes events just force their way onto the agenda. Politicians call it cutting through. You know those issues that reach even the voters who don't normally pay attention to politics. And it feels as if Dominic Cummings bending the lockdown rules has cut pretty deep into the national conversation. Well, has it? Does it really matter? We certainly couldn't resist talking about it. So for that reason, I'm joined remotely by my producer, Phil Berman. There was definitely a time when I would have basically phoned the desk and said, I know I'm supposed to be on holiday, but I've got to write about this. Uh, but it, it seems that time is not now. Um, although I'm getting to get a lot of it out now. So this is actually, you're enabling me. This is enabling my, my politics addiction. We should stop this straight away and go back to talking about football. But there is no football. You get sucked into it. But also, it's one of those things that everyone is talking about. Uh, and obviously, everyone's talking about COVID and coronavirus, and it, that has this dominant political gravity uh, that's bigger than a lot of things that happen in politics. But it's pretty unusual. We talked about this the other day, didn't we? It's pretty unusual to have something that not only does everyone raise spontaneously in conversation, a political episode, but that they do it in almost exactly the same terms, I was just struck by people saying, I'm angry, I'm really angry about this, angry about Cummings. You say everyone is talking about it. Um, I spoke to my wife about it and she said, uh, um, she hasn't paid a slightest bit of attention to it and said, uh, oh, politicians are lying, are they? Well, oh, that's not new, is it? Politicians are always lying. Yeah, that's a good point. And by everyone, that's such a dangerous word. 
ever to use in political commentary, although I just did it in sequence. Everyone is talking about it because that's the world you operate in. Outside of that world, another friend of mine, for example, I spoke to, um, who's actually quite interested in politics and she is a single parent and she's got a lot of stuff on her hands and she's like, ah, oh, bloody hell, it's a witch hunt, isn't it? And she's not, she's, she's, she's a liberal. Bloody witch hunt, why aren't they, why aren't they talking about care homes? Yeah, and, and there is, as you say, there's this classic thing where sort of everyone I know voted Remain. How could it possibly be Leave or everyone I know voted Leave? Who are all these Remainers? Um, and that is a phenomenon that is, I think, accelerated. It's accelerated, obviously, by social media. You know, we're in our filter bubbles, in our silos, but accelerated particularly at the moment because we spend more time at home looking at computers rather than being out and about. People aren't even going into the office. They're not getting on public transport where they would encounter the sort of the friction of people outside their demographic comfort zone, if you see what I mean. People who might just give them opinions, although you were just saying you encountered that at home with your wife. So there's clearly a difference of opinion. So yeah, and this is what has been slightly bothering me is this question of how do you know if it's something that everyone is talking about? How do you know what cuts through? That's the phrase that everyone always uses in politics what's a kind of a cut through moment my sense and uh, again you know sense is a very bad metric for these things but the, one of the reasons i'm fascinated by this is uh, first of all getting messages from people involved in politics who are telling me that their sense is that this is cutting through and that's really the only metric that as a commentator you have until there's polling civil servants and MPs and advisors from across the political spectrum saying, no, this is a big one. This this one really has, you know, the, the, this is a Richter scale event and it's moved something. Uh, and because I, I spent the weekend really not sure and actually sending people messages saying, is it one of those or is it a kind of one of those little things that ultimately blows over? And one of the things that makes this particular case kind of exquisite on that point is that Dominic Cummings himself prides himself on being the guy who can read those things. And he's always giving journalists a hard time saying, you're all in your Westminster bubble. You just sit here in SW1. You don't know the British people. Uh, just you know, move along. There's nothing to see here on story X or Y. Why do you think that there has been such a response. It was something that you mentioned the other day, which I thought was quite interesting around the idea of this sense of fairness and cheating, the sense that someone had, I think you said, Q-jumped. For me, whether or not this is something that really animates something different in the in the sort of the British psyche, if we can talk about such a thing at all, again, dangerous concept, uh, it is that the it's the part of our national character that, that hates Q-barging. And I, I, I don't mean that to sort of belittle what's happened with coronavirus and COVID. I mean, obviously a lot of the suffering people have had is substantially more extreme and traumatic than just someone pushing in the queue in front of you. But I think the sense that people were being patient and they were waiting and they were sacrificing something and, and they were doing it out of a sense of collective duty. Everyone's standing in this queue, everyone knows their place and everyone remembers when they got into the queue and we know that there's a system here and it's not, there's no laws about queue jumping. There's no, you know, the 1997 queue orderliness bill that stipulates and regulates exactly how it's done. We just get how it works as a country. And then you just found out or you saw this guy that go in through a back door somewhere and do something different. And it animates something, I think, very visceral. 
uh, in people's sense of, of fairness. And then you layer on top of that how much emotional trauma is involved in this as well. And I think that has a lot of potential to, to really wind people up. At the same time, there are also conservatives who, who, who before this all blew up, had a libertarian bias about lockdown and felt that separate to the sort of epi epidemiological efficacy, now that's a pretty hard thing to say when you've had a couple of pints, so I'm going to say it again, apart from the epidemiological efficacy of uh, locking down, they felt that the existence of state-mandated staying at home felt so tyrannical that it should be resisted. Uh, and then on top of that, that the economy was tanking and you needed to people get people the hell back into their workplaces and, and trading and doing stuff. And that must have fed at some level, regardless of whether or not they like Dominic Cummings personally. And frankly, I mean, a lot of people who have dealt with him don't like him <laughs> because on a personal level, unless he really thinks you are his intellectual equal and important to him in some way, he is can be very offhand and abrasive, uh, and he also has quite a lot of on-the-record contempt for the Conservative Party. I mean, he will sort of vote Leave um, and Team Johnson, Team Boris, Team Brexit, and really sees a lot of t Tory MPs as sort of useful idiots, uh, and they know that he thinks that of them. And so there's all those things swirling around. Probably quite a lot of political journalists have got a lot of skin in the game, because if it turns out that he doesn't go and everything sort of goes back to normal, it almost sort of doesn't vindicate their, their, their point of view on the story because it wasn't as big as they thought it was. I'd go further than that. I think, I think it's, very, it's very difficult when the story is the person who controls the flow of information from government to the media. You know, by definition, a lot of political journalists have to manage that relationship really carefully. And so, uh, you know, and I'm... I, I think there's probably a bit of excess cynicism about the way that relationship works out there. I think people probably don't give political journalists as much benefit of the doubt as maybe they could in terms of how hard they are trying to just do the story as opposed to protecting their relationship with the person in the story. Um, but I've got all sorts of obviously sort of biases floating around in the way I judge that. Uh, and the reality is, you know, Dominic Cummings, uh, and this is true in lots of political stories, will be a source for a lot of people. And at, whether it's conscious or unconscious, there comes a moment in this story or in the cycle of these events where you're thinking, uh, how, you know, to what extent should we as a journalistic institution or should I as a journalistic individual set fire to one of my best sources in politics? Um, do I just accept that, you know, that is, it's going to happen anyway. And, and the game is the game. These people aren't my friends. And I don't know how much that really weighs on the minds of people who are having to, to deal with it on a day to day basis. I'm on holiday and I'm not doing news reporting uh, and I don't, uh, and haven't really had any kind of professional relationship with Dominic Cummings. So. Anything that undermines trust in the government uh, and makes it look as if government motivation is corrupted in some way. So this idea that, well, there's one rule for them and one rule for the rest of us, that's a very resonant argument, I think, that's around at the moment, uh, means that whatever future me messages they want to put out 
will just might not go as far uh, and i can i can see how that is going to be a problem i mean just it's sort of again extrapolating from my own personal experience uh and again i mean people who've read the column will know i'm no fan of boris johnson or this government um but i observed in myself a a sort of curdling of my interest in what boris johnson had to say at all in his press conference yesterday because there was this new sort of patina of but why should really why should we listen to what you're saying now uh, and the by that i mean when he's announcing changes to the lockdown regulations you think but haven't you implicitly already announced that lockdown is kind of whatever you want it to be as long as you can come up with some family related justification for doing whatever you're doing and he has that is implicitly that announcement was made in his support for Cummings and that that I think has to have some impact on the way in which uh, the government message on public health it, it lands. Uh, and I saw someone, I wish I could now remember who it was, made this great point, which was how could the Conservative Party have forgotten about grandparents, you know, their core vote? Uh, and it's it's grandparents who aren't necessarily that worried about catching the disease, or at least know how to protect themselves in terms of basic social distancing and washing their hands and, and not getting into crowded places, but haven't seen their grandchildren for two months uh, and because they didn't want to get in the car and drive uh, or they didn't want their family to get in the car and drive to them and sit in their back garden uh, it seems to me now that by definition they've been given permission to do that and that that will change the behavior i don't think it's necessarily wild or extreme to think that this has put a new a kind of a, a filter on the lens that presents the prime minister in a light that is going to make it harder for him and easier for people who to, to walk away from voting conservative in the future. Generally, the thing that makes people turn away from a prime minister is often a, an inversion or a, a, a a distortion of the same character trait that attracted them to that candidate in the first place. So uh, with Tony Blair at the beginning, he just came across as, you know, in his own words, pretty straight guy, seemed quite normal, decent. He was just called me Tony. He was easygoing. And he, uh, in the context of the mid to late 1990s, he just was this sort of refreshing, normal guy and he wasn't a Tory uh, and, and many other things as well, which we could talk about, but won't. Um, and then that then became the same quality in him that seemed intrinsically slippery and dishonest and um, that made it hard once you'd been through the whole Iraq war process and, the, you know, all the other things that undermined his authority. Um, it was it was somehow the same trait that he was projecting that then soured in the public imagination i think and gordon brown uh he you know in contrast to tony blair he seemed serious solid uh had more bottom to him he was a you know a, a more uh sort of heavyweight character but then that same characteristic became um robotic unemotional unresponsive very similar to what happened with theresa may going back earlier margaret thatcher um knew what she believed in serious um, had principles, had values, did what she believed in. You didn't necessarily have to agree with her, people would say, but, you know, she knew what she was about. And then that became uh, stubborn, a maniac, uh, can't, you know, only has sort of one gear. 
uh, it was the same trait. And I think with Boris, the interesting question is, you know, what is that for Boris Johnson? You know, what, what was it that attracted people to Boris Johnson that then when you look at the other side of the coin uh, becomes something that they think, I don't want this guy to be my prime minister anymore. Uh, and does this Cummings episode accelerate that flip of the coin? Uh, and it's possible it does. Well, that's very interesting that you say that because I, I was thinking something very similar last night when I watched him on, his, on the press conference. I was thinking, despite everything which has appeared to have gone wrong so far this pandemic, he was quite a bullion. He was quite upbeat and he was quite confident on the press conference last night when he was saying, you know, getting this under control, it's all going fine. And I was thinking, well, actually, you know, that I think the thing, I don't know if this is backed up by polling, you'll probably know better than me, but he's he's kind of got that confidence in him, a billion, some positivity, which people kind of quite like about him. I don't feel like anyone's really kind of been in favour or supported him because they think he's a particularly trustworthy person or that he's a sort of an honest guy who you can really put your faith in. But I always feel that people have felt that like he's, he exudes that positivity and confidence about something, even things which, when things are going wrong. And I guess that's still there. And, you know, if that is the case, then that might not make any make so much difference. It's interesting. I'd seen it in a slightly, or I had this thought that is unformed yet, but I'll try and express now here live, 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 live hot take bubbling up. Uh, I think part of that, optimism and confidence is is and what what i think is actually the i'd almost say the sort of the genius of the boris political character i use boris there in sort of in inverted commas this this uh shtick that he has uh this this persona that he's he's created that's very effective is it it brings people into complicity it, it it's it's all done with a kind of a wink that like if you like the character and if you're in with him on his side, you're in on the joke and all the whinging Romani lefty people who are bleating about it and saying, but you said 350 million and it wasn't 350 million. They're the butt of the joke because they're being all terribly pious and serious. And he's saying, no, we don't have to be like that. We can just believe and have fun and it's all going to be great. And suddenly it's, it's, it's definitely more appealing in a sort of crude playground sense, to be on the side of the guy who's got the jokes and is funny and isn't taking himself too seriously than to be on the side of the really earnest people who just don't want you know, the sort of the, the buzzkill uh, the, and the joyless people. And that's why his line about, I can't remember the exact wording he used uh, for, for Remainers, but the doomsters and gloomsters, I think it was. Uh, that was a very, very effective way of saying, look, who wants to be a doomster and a gloomster when you can be... Uh, on on team boris now coming to where we are now with cummings i think and this is where you might get a kind of inversion uh, of that trait is it oh it works when you are on the side of the person who's the joker and you're all you know he's he's sort of winking at you and going yeah well you know i'm a bit of a i play things a bit fast and loose and i do a lot of you know basically maybe a little bit uh casual with the truth but you know we're, we're all you know it's all part of getting Brexit done and uh, and it's all a bit of fun and don't know who wants to take this stuff too seriously. First of all, I think a pandemic might not be the right media for that, frankly. But also, if suddenly you are the one who's the butt of the joke, you are having the piss taken out of you, it's not so funny anymore. And that's where I think the Cummings thing is dangerous for him. So suddenly it's not, oh, right, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying Have I Got News For You, Boris?, uh, who's because he's basically laughing at someone else. 
I sat at home for eight weeks, not seeing my family. I had to watch a funeral on Zoom and it's me he's laughing at. And suddenly he's taking the piss out of me. Uh, and that's where I think you could get that kind of inversion that really damages him. But like I say, that is pure, currently pure speculation on my part in terms of you know, where we are. One element of this that we haven't talked about, and which is where I bring it back into the politics, uh, is the availability of the option to self-isolate on a big farm that has its own discrete houses uh, and the way in which, and I'm not sure about this yet, but how that just feeds into the sense that actually um, it's all right for some, isn't it? That you know, not only did he drive all the way to Durham, but the whole apparatus of that uh, is is something that lots and lots of people would gladly have done, not just in terms of having a, a flex in the rules, uh, but essentially the sort of material privilege that enables you to get what sounds to a lot of people like a pretty cushy way to self-isolate. Um, and, and I don't know whether that is, is, is part of it. There are very few people in the country who have that option. And how much of it is that, yeah, I bloody well wish I could do something like that and I can't. And they're angry that they couldn't do something like that rather than someone else did what it is that they perhaps shouldn't have done. This comes back to where we started and maybe it's a good place to sort of wrap it up, which is I, my sense is it's still more in that zone of we obeyed the rules because that was the dutiful thing to do. And now we, I don't mean, actually it's wrong to use the first person plural plural, but I think there are people who are thinking they obeyed the rules uh, because that was the dutiful thing to do. And now they feel like mugs because it turns out that the people who were setting the rules had, didn't really think the rules were what they'd said it was, or certainly didn't think the rules applied to them. Uh, and that's slightly different from the, you know, rich Tory obviously has huge country estates to self-isolate on. I think that's sort of in the price of the Tory party, if you see what I mean, already. You know that that's part of the brand and people have probably... At, you know it's deep in the british cultural imagination that that's kind of what some tories are and what they look like when people do a sort of caricature in their heads of a tory and they've accepted that you're getting that when you get a tory government and they voted for it anyway um whereas the the rules thing i think feels a bit newer uh, and for the reasons that we sort of discussed earlier i think tunnels under the foundations of the boris brand uh, a bit more in a way that could be quite hazardous to him but what would be really interesting, and we should definitely use this as an opportunity to draw up an agenda for future politics on the couch episodes, is to think about when we say trusting politicians, what is it that we are expecting them to do on our behalf that we, we why do we have trust in them? I mean, it's easy to say, well, to govern properly or what, to make us better off or to keep us safe from invasion and in this case, disease. You know, we have we we talk about trust, but we don't really interrogate uh, what are the the sort of the values and the virtues uh, that you know in a relationship you trust someone to be faithful to you, or you know as a child you trust your parents to keep you safe. So, what is it we're trusting politicians to do for us? And I think that's something we should try and get a guest on to talk about. Yeah, I've just had a message. I've had a message from my wife downstairs saying. We need to access that room. Okay, so but we're okay. good. We've got that. Right. You're still recording, by the way. This is all being recorded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's good. Yeah. So whatever you use, and then we'll just liaise okay. later.
Thanks very much indeed for listening to Politics on the Couch. Thank you to Gareth from Out Yonder TV, who mixed the show in his Berlin studio and also did the theme music. Usual rider is that because we recorded this remotely, any deficiencies in sound are entirely down to lockdown and me. His company does some awesome illustrations, animations, music, as well as sound mixing. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time when we've got um, Bobby Duffy, the author of The Perils of Perception, Why We're Wrong About Nearly Everything. Worth saying, we don't think you're wrong for listening to our podcast. And if you like it, please share it on all usual social media platforms and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, anything else which causes me to do a pop. And Raph and I will speak to you in a couple of weeks' time. Bye.